Welcome to the Whale Scout Podcast, everyone. My name is Whitney Negebauer, and today we are joined by Colleen Weiler, the Jessica Ricos Fellow from Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Listeners may recall our previous podcast that we've done together for the Orca Month Book Club back in June. And I'm excited today to talk about a slightly different topic, North Atlantic right whales. And, you know, those are uh, a species that are also a main focus of Colleen's. So, Colleen, it's great to have you back today. Hi, Whitney. Thanks for having me back on. Excited to join you again. And, yeah, talking about a little bit of a different topic today. So let's move from the Pacific Coast to the Atlantic Coast. And a lot of our listeners are perhaps more familiar with orcas and whales on the West Coast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about North Atlantic right whales and, you know, what makes them so special? <laughs> I think, uh, well, what makes them special to me is how unique of a species they are. They're just so fascinating. Um, I, I think, you know, in general, there's, they're, they're baleen whales, obviously. So there's one big difference from orcas right there. Um, but they are one of the like classic U.S. whale species, even though we often don't think of them that way. Um, they have, you know, they're, they're known as the urban whale because they live so close to coastal waters. They use waters all the way down from Florida and Georgia. Um, that's where their calving grounds are in the wintertime up to Maine, Gulf of um, uh, Cape Cod Bay. I'm sorry, I was going to jump ahead to Canada, but <laughs> pretty much waters all along the East Coast. So there are these really urban whales. Um, but we don't, you know, we, we I think in, in the modern age, we feel a little disconnected from them because there are just so few left. And way back when, um, when the U.S. started to first be settled by Europeans, um, they were a lot more prevalent and they actually show up in the the log of the Mayflower. Like they were spotted <laughs> by those first uh, first people coming over from Europe. Um, and they were, you know, obviously really targeted for whaling because of that accessibility. Uh, they were pretty easy to get to. And because they are just these huge, round, massive like tubs of whales um they were pretty good whales to good whales uh to hunt because they were full of fat and oil and floated after they died so they were relatively easy to retrieve and that's are, really what drove their uh their initial decline right are there estimates that go back and try to understand just how many animals there were in the population before they were hunted Oh, uh, I'm sure that there are. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but <laughs> um, from, you know, it, they were one of the first whales listed as endangered and protected uh, way back in the 1930s when there were around 100 left. Um, and I'm sure through genetics and, and whaling records, there is uh, a, a best estimate at how many used to exist. Right. How many exist today? Today, there's about an estimated uh, around 360. So that number is actually um, even fewer than we thought just a couple years ago uh, when it was guessed that there were around 400 left. The most recent population estimate um, released just a few months ago is about 360. And so 
currently they're not being hunted, correct? Right. They are protected from whaling. So what sort of threats are they currently facing that is really challenging this population? Well, the main threats, uh, the modern threats for them today are other issues of of human-caused mortality. And unfortunately, um, unlike whaling, which is very intentional, uh, the current threats are, are unintentional. It just is kind of the circumstance of them being so urban and sharing space with us. And it's really driven by uh, accidental entanglements in fishing gear and accidental vessel strikes. They overlap with a lot of um, really heavy, heavily, heavily concentrated fishing um, and shipping lanes, and that puts them at risk of getting hit by boats uh, and getting wrapped up in fishing gear. For the North Atlantic right whales, are there similarities between the southern residents that we might be more familiar with and, um, and, and this population? You know, for example, are they photo identified? Are they social animals? Um, it seems like they, you've explained that they take on more of a seasonal migration, which is mm-hmm. sort of different than, than southern resident killer whales, although we do see some seasonality to their travel. Yeah, they, you know, like the classic baleen whale, they go between warm and cold waters. Um, it's it's funny that you mention <laughs> those kind of two specific um, comparisons, the photo ID and the, the social nature, because my, you know, I just started um, working on being really dedicated to also working on right whale issues a few years ago. And one of the first things that struck me was just how many parallels there were between the Southern resident orca situation and North Atlantic right whales. And when I mentioned that to the, to some of the right whale folks, they, they looked at me like I had two heads because they were like, they're completely different species. Um, and they are, but the, the parallels are really, um, in the situation of both species, but going back to the, the two points you mentioned, we can get into that in a little bit. Um, yes, they are photo ID'd. So right whales are identified by the callosity pattern on their heads. Um, so each right whale has this different uh, formation and, and layout of these white patches on their faces um, that allows researchers to track who's who. And they're not social in the way that orcas are social, where you know they stay in these tightly knit family groups. Um, but they are kind of uh, <laughs> party animals. They like to get together in, in big groups um, called SAGs or surface active groups, and and do a lot of socialization, um, especially in, uh, you know, on breeding grounds and then in, um, in feeding areas too, a little further up the coast. Wow. What are those white patches? Like, what are they made of and what is it? Oh, we can edit this, right? I have to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, don't, don't, you know, uh, kill yourself here but like is it skin or is it animals or is are there barnacles that are growing it's, on these guys yeah it's both i mean it is uh, a, a calcified skin patch um so it is a callosity so it's like uh you know if you get calluses on your fingers from uh holding your pencil in a certain way you know you kind of build up a little a little rough patch so they do have that and then the callosity is are colonized um, by whale lice um, and barnacles. And I, I think, um, you know, over here on the West Coast, we have the gray whales, which can also have 
barnacles and, and different parasites and life living on them. And that's maybe a little more familiar to, to folks here. Again, with the orcas, they have pretty smooth skin and they don't have a lot of um, hitchhikers. <laughs> but baleen whales can certainly have um, little little friends along for the ride. Humpbacks get barnacles attached to their, their flippers and their faces. And on the right whales, those callosities are uh, usually inhabited by some whale lice. And so these patterns are tracked over time. Do they mm-hmm. change much? Or are they largely permanent? They stay pretty consistent. Um, they change, again, similar to orcas and the saddle patch kind of changes from when they're juveniles mm-hmm. to becoming adults. Um, that can happen in right whales with the callosities as well. But once they are adults, it, it does stay um, pretty, yeah, pretty consistent over their lifetime. So they can track them. There, There might be some changes or especially with whale lice, um, you know, moving around or if they get an injury, uh, it can certainly change how it appears. But for the most part, it stays the same. Sure. And are the calves born with them as well? Or do they sort of develop over time? You know, we think of a lot of the orca calves are born with a almost really transparent saddle patch. And then it kind of like comes in and becomes whiter and, and more of a contrast on the on the black patterning um they again like it's very a light pattern on the juveniles so it's not as evident as it is in the adults but it is something that like the orcas kind of comes in over time very cool and yeah. Are there other comparisons that with southern resident killer whales that you want to talk about and then you know a lot of this is also conservationists with the people, the communities that are trying to save them as well. Are there parallels there as well? Yeah, going back to kind of what I touched on earlier, the the parallels that jumped out to me was a lot of that conservation stuff. And the fact that, you know, these two populations are very urban and overlap with a lot of human activity, um, that both populations are are relatively well studied compared to other whale populations that we don't know a whole lot about. Um, You know, we have decades of sighting history and information going back on both of these groups of whales. Um, And we have a pretty clear understanding of what the issues facing them are. We know for some residents, it's food, it's contaminants, it's noise. We know for right whales, it's entanglements, it's fossil strikes. So there's a pretty clear idea like, okay, we know what's going on. Uh, We know what the potential fixes are. We just need to get the political willpower and the resources and the regulations in place to actually make a difference for these whales. So it's kind of the same conservation challenges on both coasts too, in that we know what needs to happen. It's just getting that past the finish line and, and actually getting those measures in place to help both populations recover. So let's talk a little bit about some of the successful conservation measures that have taken place for the right whales so far. There's been really good success in um, a ship strike rule, which came out in 2008 and was renewed in 2013 or 14, I think, um, and really made a significant difference in protecting them from from vessel strikes. Uh, And what that did was instituted some speed limits in high-use right whale areas, uh, shifted some shipping lanes to kind of move them out of areas that right whales were using, and put in some some seasonal and some dynamic 
specific areas with with more of those same measures. So seasonal speed limits, um, dynamic areas where if there are whales here, uh, an alert goes out to boaters to keep an eye out, to slow down, to maybe avoid the area. Um, those were really successful at the time. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, starting about in, in 2010, right whales really started shifting their, their habitat use and distribution and started moving into areas where um, those protective measures were not in place. So it's not to say that they're not still using those areas where there are measures in place, but they're using them less frequently. So again, we have a track record of we know that this can help them, um, but we need to apply it in other areas now. And for entanglements, um, there's certain areas that are closed to fixed gear fishing for uh, for lobster and crab on the East Coast. Um, again, during seasons of high right whale use, um, no no fixed gear fishing for those species in that area. What do you um, mean by fixed gear? So fixed gear is uh, a type of fishing, you know, if you think of fishing, you think of going out on a boat and, you know, casting your line in the water and kind of waiting for the fish to bite. Um, fixed gear is typically untended. So you're not just casting a line in and hanging out. You're actually dropping um, usually a, a pot because you're going after lobster or crab. So you want them to crawl in that pod and stay there into the water and that sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And then that's connected to a buoy, which sits at the top of the water column so that you can come back later and find where you left your gear and pick it up and and harvest your so, your lobster or your crab. So, so there's fixed a rope gear from the bottom to the top. Bottom to the top. Okay. Um, there's a, a buoy line that again runs from at least one trap up to the top, uh, and it generally just sits in one place. It can certainly move by waves and storms, and um, they often get caught by other boats, uh, which is also why <laughs> the buoys are nice because it does flag where that gear is located. But that's what we mean by fixed gear. So it stays in one place. Um, it's not tended and it can stay out for differing periods of time, kind of depending on on when people go back to check that gear. And so then what happens with the whales? They swim by and just kind of catch a pectoral fin on it or what happens? <laughs> That's one, that's uh, the $10 billion question. Um, and one of the complicated things about addressing entanglements is that we don't really know how it happens because they're so rarely observed. Um, we often see the whales after they're entangled when they do have rope wrapped around them. Um, but seeing the events themselves are pretty rare if, <laughs> if never. I think there's been one or two um, that have actually been observed. And from, you know, it's it's also hard to kind of back, uh, backfill like how they got entangled from what they look like when they are because they just get so wrapped up in the rope. Um, you know, it's, it, it, I compare it to walking through spider webs. You know, if you're walking down a trail and a web hits you, you don't kind of calmly back up and back off. You flail and spin and kind of get yourself tangled up more in that. And it seems like that's what the whales do. Um, they hit a rope either with a fin or their tail or their mouth, because it happens a lot when they're feeding, when they're foraging, um, and they spin and they just get even more wrapped up in it. And then through trying to get themselves out or through just travel or even interacting with other whales, they can get themselves even further tangled up. So if we knew how it, that initial 
initial entanglement point happened, um, that might go a long way in helping to to change the gear to reduce that instance of happening. Right. And then, so once they're tangled up, they struggle with feeding, they struggle with travel, they just, I'm sure there's the risk of infection from wounds. Um, explain yeah. sort of what happens in their demise. Yeah, entanglements are, are nasty. Um, it can certainly, all of the things that, that you mentioned, um, the entanglement itself can cause really significant injuries. They can cut into the flesh and muscle and skin. They can cause really bad infections. Um, they can even sever limbs if, you know, tails and fins, if, if the wrap is bad enough and there's enough drag. Um, and if a whale is entangled and even if they, they don't get this horrible injury, uh, just the drag of carrying that extra gear and rope around can be a huge energy drain on them. Like if you're, you know, walking around all day with um, maybe with a kid attached to your leg or, <laughs> with, uh, you know, something tied to your ankle um, and you're pulling around like a, a kettlebell or something all day, that's exhausting. Um, so they're dragging a lot of extra weight with them. Sometimes it gets through their mouth and can impede their ability to, to eat food. Um, and that can, you know, obviously lead to other problems with starving and, and not being able to get enough calories. So it's, yeah, it's a, a nasty, scary business. Here on the West Coast, there are disentanglement teams of people who go out in small vessels with, you know, specialty knives and helmets and, you know, drag buoys and sort of specialty equipment to disentangle mm -hmm. whales. Is that happening uh, with right whales? Oh, absolutely. That is actually really where disentanglement efforts started is on the East Coast and with the Center for Coastal Studies, which is the amazing, wonderful group of dedicated, very highly trained people who go out and do these disentanglement attempts and, and try to um, to help whales. It's, you know, it's complicated and it's difficult. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes an entangled whale is sighted once and never seen again. And it, it's a lot to do with weather conditions and sea conditions. Um, but yeah, there, there are fantastic teams all up and down the East Coast that are dedicated to going out and trying to disentangle these whales. You mentioned their food source potentially is shifting or their habitat use is shifting. Do we have any idea why that's happening and what sort of research questions still remain with right whales? The best uh, theory for that is a shift in food um, driven by climate change. So something happened around 2010 with just a big shift in the ocean conditions for right whales and their habitat um, and moved their food supply. And whales go where the food is. And so they started going into areas where they really hadn't been using a lot before. Um, you know, maybe they'd come into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, for example, up in Canada um, once or twice, but hadn't found anything and took off again. But once the food moved there, it became a really important foraging area and they started using it more and more. Um, there's definitely a lot of questions still to answer with that. Like, what is it, what is really driving the food moving? Um, the Gulf of Maine is 
warming, I think, faster than any other, um, you know, coastal ocean system in the U.S. just by means of the topography and bathymetry and how it's put together. Um, it's significantly warming. And that, again, is causing their food to move and the whales go where their food is. And what exactly are they eating? They eat uh, copepods, um, little, you know, fat little, <laughs> fat little shrimpies. Uh, <laughs> not the same thing as the krill um, that our humpbacks eat here or the amphipods that our gray whales eat. But same, uh, same type of little tiny critters. So So big big whales eating really small things. I see. And they're uh, using their baleen plates to sort of filter that Mm -hmm. out of the water column. Are they feeding from from the top or the the middle? Or or is their their food sort of spread throughout the water column? They tend to feed in the top of the water column. And the... (laughs) The few times that I've been lucky enough to see right whales um, was when they were feeding. And it was just such a strange sight to see because they really do look like lawnmowers just kind of going back and forth. Um, they they feed in a different way than the baleen whales that you normally think of humpbacks doing a lunge feed, um, you know, taking a big gulp of krill or small fish and water and then kind of straining out. Um, as they close their mouth, the water goes out and and all the food is stuck on the inside of their baleen. Uh, right whales will swim with open mouths through, you know, the surface of the water or just below the surface. So in that top level of the water column um, and they kind of strain as they go. So they're swimming through and the water is moving through their mouth. Um, so they really do look like just lawnmowers or, or Pac-Man kind of going back and forth. Um they, they do sometimes feed at the bottom, too. There's been evidence of them coming up with mud on their faces. And, and that's kind of uh, another research question. Like, what exactly is that feeding technique or strategy? Because most of what has been observed is that surface pattern. Um, but same food. They're, they're going after copepods. I see. And I sort of remember that some of the scat detection dogs were being used with right whales. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another uh, good parallel between them and southern resident orcas is that they were one of the first species to be studied by scat detection dogs and and have them as part of the the research. Um, And they'll sniff out the poop and collect it and look at diet and stress levels and hormone levels and and all of that really interesting stuff you can get from, from feces. A lot of your work at Whale and Dolphin Conservation deals with, you know, policy that's related to conservation. What sort of things are you working on right now with right whales and how can people help? So uh, going back to those two key threats that I mentioned, the vessel strikes and the entanglements, there are actually two open comment periods right now um, by National Marine Fisheries Service and National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NIMFS and NOAA, respectively, um, on those two issues. So right whales have um, what's known as a a take reduction team, which is something, again, (laughs) the parallels uh, to me um, was it's very similar to the task force that was put together for Southern Resident Orcas a couple years ago in Washington. But the TRT 
is a federally mandated group and has been in existence for right whales for um, 20 years. So this this thing is uh, kind of a dedicated group of different stakeholders and includes conservation groups, scientists, um, state agency managers, and and members of the fishing industry to come together and and talk about these threats and figure out recovery measures and, and regulations and how to reduce entanglements specifically. Um, so the TRT met a few years ago and uh, outlined some potential actions to take to address entanglements, especially um, given that habitat shift and right whales moving into areas where previous regulations didn't apply. So there's a new rule out right now from National Marine Fisheries Service that takes those recommendations from the TRT and um, has some suggested specific regulations to reduce entanglements. Um, there's a lot about the rule that is not perfect. Um, NIMPS used that 2018 population estimate of 400 whales, and we know now that there are even fewer left. Um, so, you know, there's there's some changes that we feel needs to happen with this proposed rule. Um, and in the meantime, to make sure that right whales are protected and that they don't further decline, uh, we're asking NIMPS to put in some emergency measures to take action now while they go back and refine this rule and make it stronger. Um, and then there is another comment period open on vessel strikes. Uh, again, they've been using areas more where protective measures are not in place. So needing to expand some of those things like speed limits, um, including more boats in these regulations because they can be hit by really any type and size of vessel. Um, and looking at different areas of moving or, or shifting shipping lanes to protect them. And right now on that, NOAA is just asking, should we take action on vessels? Do we need to do more to reduce vessel strikes? And that's a pretty clear, well, yes, you do, because they are going into these areas now where they're more likely to be hit by boats because regulations aren't in place. So we need to cover those too. Um, so, you know, obviously... We've got more information on our website and a couple of petitions you can sign to help participate and join. Um, <laughs> there's also an act, I'm giving all this to-do list. Uh, there's uh, legislation called Save the Right Whales Act in the US Congress right now, which would dedicate funding to tackling some of these issues and looking at um, gear innovation to reduce entanglements better assessment and monitoring of right whales so that we can kind of answer some of those research questions of where are they going? They're moving out of their historic habitat areas. Uh, what's driving that move? What can we, you know, what, what can we put together to better, um, better track them and better predict where they might be going? So calling your senators, representatives, asking them to support that bill, um, weighing in on these proposals from the federal government, Lots of things going on for right whales right now. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> Good news to hear that there are lots of things going on that um, all of us at home on the West Coast or wherever you are around the world can get involved with. And I will, of course, ask Colleen to send us links for all of those um, action alerts. We will put the links up on our website, whalescout.org. We will also include links wherever you listen to this podcast, whether it be on iTunes, 
um, or on YouTube, you can watch the video and check out. I'm going to put a teaser out there. Colleen has just a really great T-shirt on today that um, you should watch <laughs> on YouTube to see what it says. It's a whale joke, and it's awesome. Uh, Colleen, what's uh, Whale and Dolphin Conservation's website where you can go to learn more? Whales.org. Snag that URL, didn't you? <laughs> it's a great one. Everyone can remember that. Whales.org. Well, thank you, Colleen, so much for coming to chat with us again today. And I hope to talk again very soon um, about all sorts of other whale topics that are out there. So thanks for, for joining. Whitney, thanks for having me and giving me a chance to talk about something besides orcas, even though, you know, we love talking about them, too. <laughs> of course, I, I learned a lot today, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you very much. Thanks, Whitney.